The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel in the 36th chapter, reading verses 33, 34, and 35. Verses 33, 34, and 35 in the 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Thus saith the Lord God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded, and the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Here you see this prophet goes on. The whole statement is a magnificent portrayal of the blessings of the Christian gospel, starting at verse 16 and going on like this right until the end of the chapter. It is one of those extraordinary four views of the Christian message and the Christian gospel, the Christian salvation and all its benefits, which we have scattered about in the Old Testament. I keep on emphasizing this because there are still people who seem to be so dulled by sin that they can't see the gospel in the Old Testament, as if it were not the same God in the Old and in the New, the same covenant, the same gracious purposes. It's the same message. It's the form alone that differs. And thus it comes to pass that frequently there is a peculiar advantage in looking at the gospel through the Old Testament pictures. I say that because there is no doubt at all that men and women are helped by pictures and by illustrations. We are told that that is especially true today, that people can no longer listen and they can no longer read, but that they like looking at things. They like pictures and illustrations. Well, if that is so, there is a peculiar advantage in, at this present time, therefore, in looking at the gospel in terms of some of these Old Testament pictures. And that, I feel, has a very particular application to this picture that we're going to look at this evening. Now, as we come to look at it, there are certain preliminary points that must of necessity strike us at once. The first is that this is yet an addition. Thus saith the Lord God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also. Now we've come across a number of these alsos. God is going to bring them back, he says, from captivity into their own land. We saw that in verse 24. Then he begins to divide it up and to put it in details. He's going to do this. He's going to sprinkle clean water upon us and we shall be clean from all our filthiness and all our idols. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and so on. He keeps on adding to it and he says also and thus we are reminded of the perfection of this Christian salvation, of the endlessness of the benefits, and the consequent glory of this astounding way of redemption. 
Now, I don't know what you feel, but I feel myself as I study this paragraph and as I analyze it thus from week to week, I feel increasingly convinced that our greatest trouble is our failure to realize the greatness of God's way of redemption and of salvation. I suppose this is the final sin that we will persist in measuring God by our own measures. We measure the very being and person of God in our foolish, sinful arrogance. We claim to be able to understand God and his eternal mind, and we reject the gospel because we can't understand it. Thus, all along, we are trying to bring God down to our measures. And we do so with regard to the benefits of salvation. Now, this is something that is not only true of those who are not Christians, it is true of us who are Christians. Our greatest trouble is our failure to see the glory of it all, the greatness, the scope of it all. I will also. There's no end to it, in a sense. Well, I take it that part of the explanation of this curious tendency on our part is just this. These two things always go together. It is our failure to realize the nature of sin and the havoc that sin has wrought in the life of men and in the life of the world. Uh, more and more I come to see this, that it is a defective view of sin that accounts for the defect everywhere. Because... God's salvation is designed to undo all the nefarious and evil effects of sin. There is a word in the first epistle of John in the third chapter, which puts it perfectly. For this, it says, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil, which means undo them, cancel them out. He came into the world in order that he might entirely undo all that the devil has done to God's perfect creation and especially in the life of men. And what this paragraph in a sense is doing is just this. It shows us how one by one the Lord Jesus Christ by his coming into this world, by his active life of obedience by his atoning sacrificial death when he made himself a substitute for our sins and how he, being buried, rose again and burst us under the bends of death and has returned to the right hand of God's presence, here I say we are shown step by step and stage by stage. How? The result of that mighty movement of his from eternity into time and into whole and back again into glory has resulted in the works of the devil being undone and destroyed one by one. And this is the glory of it all. He will complete the work. All that sin has done to this world is finally going to be removed entirely and utterly. Now we must say with the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus. Very well. We see the process going on. It isn't finished yet. It's still continuing. 
and it will go on until it's completed perfectly and absolutely, and there will be nothing left of the evil effects of sin and of Satan. Now, all that I say is something that this little word also reminds us of almost at once, thus as we start our consideration of this particular statement. Because, you see, having looked at many of the things that salvation does to us, now it gives us forgiveness of sins. That's the first thing, as he indeed reminds us in this verse. You see, this is how he puts it. Now, thus saith the Lord God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also. But there is nothing to happen until he has cleansed us from our iniquities. It's essential we should say that Sunday by Sunday. Don't look to any blessing from God until you know that your sins are forgiven because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no relationship between men and God until man's sin has been removed. And that is how it is removed. It's God's action in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them. How did he do it? Well, he did it like this. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Very well. There is the thing, this first thing, this forgiveness of sins, this blotting out of our transgressions as a thick cloud, the cleansing from all our filthiness and our iniquities, and then... All the rest that we've been considering. The new heart. The new mind. The spirit of God coming within. The promise that we shall be his people and he'll be our God. The abundance of blessings. And then the consequence we considered last Sunday. The way in which any man who realizes all this. And God's abundance and munificence. The way in which he loathes himself for his vileness and foulness and stupidity and utter dullness and folly in standing against such a God and rejecting such a marvelous, wondrous offer. Very well. But then he goes on. He doesn't stop even at that. In addition, there is also this other thing. Now then, as we look at it, we are once more reminded of this principle. Everything about God's salvation is the exact opposite of what men think it to be. There is no better proof than that of the fact that the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. The gospel actually always is the exact opposite of what men thinks it is. Now let me show you what I mean by that. Here you see is a great promise that the redeemed shall live together in cities. Thus saith the Lord, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded. And then you remember, he summed it up at the end by putting it like this. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and inhabited. Now, I say that that is the exact opposite of what mankind in its blindness and ignorance generally thinks about this gospel. You uh, 
Go back in your own minds, those who were Christian to a time when you were not Christian. And I think you will find this, and those who are not Christian will confirm it now. We all by nature seems, seem to have the idea that to become a Christian somehow or another is to isolate ourselves. We think of it as a great giving up and going out of. There is the world, the wonderful world, with all its company and all its happiness and joy and camaraderie. And you're to become a Christian. And what does that mean? Well, it means stepping out on your own. And you become a lonely pilgrim in some sort of wilderness. You see the great crowd, and here you are isolated and alone. I take it it was part of the trouble of that rich young ruler that we read of just now. Oh, so much to give up. And he's going to be stripped, he's going to be helpless, he's going to be desolate. He's not going to have anything at all. He's going to be absolutely on his own and isolated. And he shrank from it, and he went away sorrowful. That seems to be the idea. It seems to have been in Peter's mind, you remember. Because Peter said, you know, we've given up, we've left homes and houses and so on. We've, we've given up such an awful lot. And he seems to ask by implication, what have we got? That's how the world always thinks of it. Something that leads a man to isolation, loneliness, a kind of wilderness existence by contrast with the great fellowship of the life that is apart from God. And the second way in which this misunderstanding tends to manifest itself, I think, is this. That man uh, seems to think that the Christian faith, the Christian position, is entirely opposed to what he calls civilization. Because what man is constantly putting up against the Christian message is the message about civilization. You see that, you find it running right through the Bible, you find it running right through history everywhere. What man opposes to God's way is what man calls his own civilization and all that that represents in his mind. He means that this is a kind of organized life of men. He thinks that Christianity is that which keeps men in a primitive condition, uncultured, unintelligent, untutored, missing all that is rarely of value. But that, uh, on the other hand, that which brings out the innate greatness of men is civilization. And how do you get civilization? Well, the first thing you do, of course, is to turn your back on Christianity. Sophistication is the opposite of salvation and of Christianity. The sophisticated men, the men of culture, the men about town, the man who really is interested in being a civilized person. He regards Christianity as something rather primitive, something rather coarse, something rather lacking in refinement. Something, he says, that you get amongst primitive types. Well, I mustn't waste your time with this, but you're familiar with the argument. It's to be put into the category of that which is at the other end of the world, as it were, from civilization and all that is represented by that term. Well, now our text this evening in displaying the wonders of salvation once more gives the lie direct, as we shall see, to all such ideas and all such arguments.
It will show us, I think, that there is nothing that finally gives us fellowship as the gospel does. And there is nothing which helps us to see ourselves and the whole of life in terms of a people, of a civilization, if you like, so much as the Christian message and the Christian faith. Now, this man puts that, of course, in the terms of the picture. And that is where I say the Old Testament is of such great value at the present time. You see, he puts it in terms of two pictures. I'm only going to look at one of them tonight. Two things are going to happen. The cities that had been waste and desolate and in a state of ruin are going to be rebuilt and re-inhabited. The land that was desolate and uncultivated and unfruitful is again to be brought into cultivation and is going to yield magnificent crops. Now then, we look, I say, only at this first picture tonight. It's a very common picture in the scriptures. It's one that is used by several of these prophets. And of course, it is a picture that very naturally suggests itself, because it, uh, first of all, corresponds to the actual history of the people of Israel themselves. And therefore, it is a wonderful picture of what God does for mankind in Christ in a spiritual sense. It's a picture that has also been used, of course, by uh, writers uh, concerning the Christian life. John Bunyan takes up this whole idea in his writing about the city of Mansoul. This whole question of the heavenly warfare this fight of faith, he takes it up. And, of course, it has been used in the same way by others. You've got it, in a sense, in that great idea of Augustine, the city of God. These two cities, man's city, civilization so-called, and the city of God. Well, now, bearing all that in mind in a very general manner, let me try to use this picture in a very simple way this evening. What are we told here? Well, it's the same thing that we've been told in every single step and in all the pictures. We see, first of all, what sin does, and then we see what the gospel of salvation does. What does sin do? Well, the first thing is this. Sin ruins life. Sin always leads to ruination and to desolation. Now, that is the great message of the Bible. It starts away back in the Garden of Eden. There it began. Man started in paradise. He's no longer in paradise. His world is no longer paradise. You see, from paradise to desolation. It's always the story. But, of course, the prophet, no doubt, had primarily in his own mind the actual history of the children of Israel. God had given them the land, and there they had built their great city of Jerusalem, which was the pride of the country, the great city set upon a high elevation, a majestic city, the Mecca of all the people, the place to which they went, and in which they took such great pride. Now, when Ezekiel wrote, these people were captives in the land of Babylon, far away from their own country and far away from Jerusalem. Yes, but we remember this, don't we? 
that before the enemy that had defeated them, carried them away as captives to Babylon, he first of all had attacked and had sacked and had ruined and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and other cities. So that when these people were carried away, it is a literal truth and fact to say that their cities were in ruin. They were desolate. The great buildings had come crashing to the ground. That is a literal fact of history. Now then, the Bible takes up that idea and it uses it as a wonderful picture. So let us work it out together. We look at men, if you like, as a kind of city of God. We can look at God's people in the same way. What do we see? Well, let us look at that city. There we see that magnificent city set upon a hill, I say, the pride and the joy of the people. You see the magnificent wall around it. You see the turrets and the battlements, the towers, all built for the defense of the city so that no marauders, no enemies, might suddenly steal into the city and kill the people and take their goods and possessions. What a noble pile it is. What a wonderful city. What a glorious prospect. And there, look at it, uh, having looked at the walls and the defenses, don't you see certain great buildings standing out, magnificent palaces, certain great museums, Noble structures with works of art and various other things, places of culture, places of interest. Look at them. Don't you see them in the city? And then above them all, and more important than them all, there is a temple. The place in which the people went to meet God. The place that linked them to heaven. The place in which they were given assurance that their sins were again covered and that God was looking upon them with benignity. The temple, the ultimate pride of the people, the sanctuary of God, the meeting place of heaven and of earth. There is your great city. And the life of the city, of course, is an ordered and a disciplined life, a life of fellowship amongst the people. And there they were all together in their city, which they called the city of God. But alas, unfortunately, they'd become negligent. Because of their forgetfulness of God and their sin, they hadn't seen to the repairs of the wall. Just simple neglect, no time for it, busy with other things, Living for the moment, forgetting the enemy, forgetting everything, except the immediate enjoyment of the moment. They'd become negligent and neglectful of the walls and the defenses. And the result of that was, do you see, that a day came when a powerful enemy came along and made his way and made breaches through these weak points in the wall. And there the enemy began pouring into the city. And what he did, as I reminded you just now, was that he raised these mighty buildings, these noble edifices, to the very ground. He sacked the temple. 
He desecrated it. He took away the very vessels and the ornaments and the gold and the silver and these other things and he left it a mass of rubble, a wretched, desolate ruin. That's the picture. The prophet is not exaggerating. He's actually giving us sheer facts. That is what the enemy did to the city of Jerusalem. And here are the people carried away and they think of their own land and they see it untilled and they see their cities a mass of ruin and of rubble no longer inhabited and themselves scattered abroad as captives. Now, my friends, that's a very perfect account in pictorial form of what sin does to man. Man can be thought of in these terms. What a piece of work is man. Oh, how wonderfully has God made us. You can imagine what is meant, cannot you, by these various buildings to which I've been making reference. The mind, the understanding, the ability. I've talked about the museums and the places of art, man's cultural ability, they're given by God. Man hasn't created these things. Shakespeare didn't make Shakespeare. Shakespeare isn't responsible for Shakespeare. Every gift that any man has is God-given. A man is born a musician. He's born a poet. He's born an artist. These gifts are all given by God. They're implanted within us. There are some of these magnificent buildings, these great palaces, the place of morality, the place of government, the civic center, the town hall, the order, the arrangement, the government. God made men like that. He gave him a balanced life, body, soul, and spirit. All these parts were there and all these magnificent gifts. Ah, yes, but more important than them all, the temple. That in men which is made for God, and where God meets with men. God made men in his own image, and he made him for himself. And he made this possibility of communion. There is a temple in the soul, in the heart of every living being. It was placed there by God. It was meant for God. It's there we meet with God. The temple. And God gave originally to men the defense, the possibility of not sinning. It was possible for men not to sin. And therefore God gave this great defense, I say. And there it is. There is men in the world but alas, man is no longer like that. Sin has come in, and as I say, sin always leads to ruin and to chaos. It leads to desolation. You notice the terms that are used in our text. Uh, when I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded. And then we read these other words, and the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. But you see, at the time of writing, they were not like that. They were in the exact opposite position. 
Well, what is it that sin does to men? Oh, it's just a repetition of this sad and sorry story that happened in the case of the children of Israel. First of all, there is a breach in the wall and in the defense. The enemy always starts with that. Oh, I don't believe in the Peter Pan conception of men in life and in this world, but there is a sense in which we are innocent. And we start like that. But a day come, comes in our history when because of our neglect of these things, because of forgetfulness of God and our failure to apply teaching and the whole subtlety and insinuation of Satan and sin, an attack is made, a breach is made in the wall, and an enemy enters in, the defenses are no longer intact. We begin to yield to sin. It becomes enticing and attractive, and we allow an enemy in. And then he proceeds with his methods, and he attacks the discipline of our life. The law and order that characterizes the life of a city is the next thing he always attacks. Discipline becomes less and less and slacker and slacker. Ah, oh, we say, after all, when we were children, of course, we took these things desperately seriously, but of course, that was ignorance. We know now. That's the argument, you remember, and discipline is immediately slackened. What is there wrong in this? Is there any harm in this? One glass of whatever it is, there's no harm in one glass, surely. That can never lead to trouble. And already, you see, the discipline is beginning to shake. That first one that leads to the final one and the gutter and the desolation the defenses, the order, the discipline. And then he begins to attack some of these magnificent buildings. Man's moral greatness and grandeur. Oh, how the enemy is attacking that at the present time. Indeed, this building has obviously been raised to the ground. People no longer seem to believe in morality. They don't recognize it as a category. There's nothing wrong in it, they say. What are you talking about? Evil is being portrayed, and some of the most offensive forms of evil are being portrayed as something very beautiful and very wonderful. There was a time, and that not so very long ago, when in public appointments and in various other things and even membership of parliament, there were certain things that excluded people. They no longer exclude. The whole moral conception of men has been shaken to its foundations. It's come crashing down. We don't know where we are morally in this modern world. That magnificent building has been brought down by the enemy. And as a consequence, more or less direct, some of the other greatest and most glorious buildings have come crashing down also. Isn't there a general lowering of the manifestation of the highest powers of men? I don't want to go into details, but I venture to hazard this opinion that we seem to have lost our idea as to what constitutes even music. 
Melody is despised and cacophony is gloried in. To be melodious oh, is to be humdrum, to be Victorian. And what's regarded as marvelous is a clash of discords. And that's said to be wonderful. And people spend their time in listening to that which is called music, which comes from primitive peoples, from the jungle. There's no mind there. It's mere rhythm, it's mere animal, it's mere, uh, mere appeal to the sensibilities. There's no thought, there's nothing uplifting, there's nothing ennobling. You just sit down like savages and are moved mechanically. Now these are facts of life. You see, though we boast of our education and culture and advance, that is what is literally happening in life. These gorgeous buildings, these magnificent edifices have been sacked and ruined by the enemy. And we are going back to a kind of primitive state of existence. Oh, but above all, of course, the temple, the temple has been ruined and sacked and has been left a mass of rubble. Oh, my dear friends, I mustn't keep you. I just ask you simple questions. Is there still a temple in your life? Is there still a sanctuary of God in your soul? Do you meet with God when you're alone? What you do, to put the question of a recent philosopher, what you do with your own solitude. He said, that's religion, what a man does with his own solitude. What do you do with your own solitude? Do you meet with God in the temple of your soul? Is it there? Is it still standing? I ask you, what about the other buildings? What of your morality? What of your chastity? What use are you putting the gifts that God has given you to. What are these glorious buildings with which God originally endowed men? Are they standing? What are the wall, the embattlements, the towers? Are there breaches? Is the wall standing or is it down? Has the enemy come flooding into your life? Do you know where you are? Are you in control? Is there any government and order and discipline? Or is all chaos and wilderness and confusion and ruin? Isn't it obvious in the modern world that this is what sin does to men? And you know, particularly I want to emphasize this evening, this fact. Man, as I said at the beginning, seems to think that if you want to have a happy life of community and fellowship, you must never become a Christian because that leads to isolation and solitude. And he thinks that it's with the world and with the crowd you have fellowship. But you know, isn't it a simple truth to say this? That life is becoming increasingly lonely. You read of that in the papers, one finds it in actual practice. Life is becoming more and more lonely. There is no place on earth which is so lonely in a sense as a great city. You stand in a corner and you see people rushing hither and thither. They're all of them passing you by and you stand alone. 
This problem is becoming an acute one and a very urgent one with regard to old people and to sick, with regard to sickness. You know, when this country a hundred years ago was much more Christian than it is today, there was much more fellowship. I'm old enough to remember a time when someone was ill in the little community in which I had the privilege of being brought up, when anybody was taken ill, it didn't matter who it was, everybody went there. One took a dinner, another took a tea, another took money. We all tried to do something. We were all one. But I'm told it's no longer like that. Everyone has to fend for himself or herself. People haven't got time to go and sit an evening with a sick old person. They must run to their form of entertainment. They've got this engagement or they're looking at this or that. And the lonely people are increasing in numbers. They're left to themselves. No one seems to think about them. It's already an urgent problem in the life of this country. What to do with lonely sick and lonely old people? This age in which we're all supposed to be one and are talking so much about our common life and all helping one another and all being looked after by the state. Loneliness is becoming a great problem. Desolation, you see. It doesn't give you a life of fellowship. It's the sinful life that leads you to isolation. And you're left alone like the prodigal in the far country. No man gave unto him. Down and out. And no one interested. When they saw him coming, they said, Look here, I'll walk the other way. That fellow's coming to beg again. That's it. Selfishness. Self-centeredness. All out for themselves. That's the life of sin. No fellowship, no community. The exact opposite. Very well, that's what sin does. Thank God for a gospel that undoes that kind of thing. It's the gospel that does it, you know, and there's nothing else that can do it but the gospel. It's God who does this as he does everything else. I will also cause you to dwell in the cities. They couldn't do it themselves in Babylon, could they? It's no, there's no point in trying to call a meeting together of the exiles in in Babylon, and to talk about your land and your city, what's the point? You haven't got any arms. You're in the hands of a cruel oppressor, and you're small in number. You can do nothing. They couldn't organize a meeting, and so we'll go back and rebuild. Impossible. But God can, and God did. God can influence the mind and the heart of a pagan ruler and emperor for the sake of his own people, and he can put them back and build the cities and inhabit them and put them back in the position where they were before. Now that is the thing that happened historically, and it happens equally gloriously in this spiritual sense as the result of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you remember the man in the hymn who prays like this? The ruins of my soul repair and reign without a rival there. A man who offers that prayer from his heart will find it answered in Christ. What does he do? Well, what he does is this, you see. He starts by clearing away the rubbish and the rubble. And oh, what a lot of it there is. The rubbish and the rubble of our own foolish philosophies, our own clever ideas and thoughts. 
Oh, there'll be an awful lot of rubble to clear away as the result of this present modern civilization. It's making a terrible havoc in life. You see it in the newspapers and in the reports of the courts. There it is. It's all somehow going to be swept away and cleared so that the sight again can be made free. And when the Holy Spirit gets to work, he does it. He clears it away. It's an astounding thing, this. He can do it in a second. You can hold on to your own opinions, old opinions and ideas, tenaciously, and then in a moment you suddenly find they've all gone, and you're standing in amazement. That's what happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, wasn't it? He went breathing out threatenings and slaughter, confident, self-assured, absolutely determined that Christ was an imposter, and that this Christianity was the last height of folly, and determined to exterminate it. And yet in a second I see him crying out and saying, What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? The rubble and the rubbish had all been cleared away. The sight is free. You see, we preach a miraculous salvation. Not the slow process of teaching and instruction. It isn't like going to a school or a university and learning a little bit more every day. My dear friend, there may be no time for that. You may be dead before next Sunday and can't come and listen to any more of this. Let me tell you therefore tonight that the Holy Spirit can do it in a flash. In a second. It's his miraculous work. And then what does he do? Well, he brings out the new plans and the new specifications and he begins to measure it out and to order it and to arrange it. And you begin to see the possibilities of a new tidiness in your life. A city shall be rebuilt. And uh, however bad cities may become, there's always a certain order and form and tidiness about the life of a city. And that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in a man's life. Into the chaos and the unutterable confusion that sin makes. He comes and he brings order. He makes you see life in a simple manner, in a new way. You see now that there are only certain big things that count. You're no longer pulled by this temptation, attracted and enticed by that lust. You're no longer at the mercy of all these forces. You've got a simple plan of life. This is very wonderful about the gospel. It simplifies the whole of existence. There is a plan and a purpose. You begin to see yourself again as a pilgrim of eternity. You see that this is a passing temporary world. You begin to have your eye on eternity. And you see that you're made for God and that the great thing is to be right with him. Your whole life is reduced to a plan. And it's a wonderful thing, this. You feel you're in the hands of the eternal architect and that he really is going to rebuild and then it starts. And it's a process, of course. Having laid the foundation in the rebirth and regeneration, he goes on building. And the buildings go up one after another. And it's a marvelous thing to be conscious of this. An interest in the Bible. An interest in prayer. Buildings are going up. They were not there before. But now I can enter into that building and there I read. And there my mind expands. 
Hall of Culture. Here I turn into another building. I'm now interested in morality. I'm interested in growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. I'm interested in being free from sin and in living a holy life like Christ. What a pattern. I look at the picture and I gaze in amazement and astonishment. And the temple. I begin to enjoy prayer. I like turning into the temple. I go there more and more. There was a time when I didn't. It wasn't there. But it's being rebuilt. And I go and I meet God. The development and the growth. And then you see, for me to just complete my picture, the government and the discipline. The central authority is there once more. The bylaws. And oh, they're all in this book. And I become interested in them. They're no longer dull and boring. I see they're all designed for me and for my benefit. Of course, I used to rebel against this sort of thing. And I wanted my own way absolutely free. I didn't care about my neighbor. I see now that life in community must be ordered. Think not every man on his own things, but also on the things of another. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Community life, you see. A life of order, central government and authority. But let me close with the most marvelous thing of all, the fellowship. There's nothing more wonderful about the Christian life than this. You suddenly discover that it isn't the isolated life you thought it was. You know, for the first time in your life, you rarely discover friends. You discover brothers and sisters. Ah, let me be quite clear about this. There is a sense in which when you become a Christian, you may have at first that awful feeling that you're going to stand absolutely alone. You may be the only member of your family that's a Christian. And because you've become a Christian, there is a separation between you and the others. They're all still one with the same interest. You are the isolated one, you're alone. And the devil comes and tells you, well now you've done it. You're going to spend your life in lonely misery. But you know it isn't true. Did you notice those words that I read to you at the beginning? How perfectly they put it all? It's our Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking. Listen to this. Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, listen to this, it's the most glorious thing. There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sakes, my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the world to come eternal life. And it's absolutely true. I remember once having to take the funeral service of a man who was a member of the church where I was privileged to minister before I came here. He died in an old age and he had no relatives at all. We couldn't trace any anywhere. He didn't know whether any were alive, anywhere or not. You would have thought there is a man who is absolutely isolated. 
Well, it was the custom in that town. They still had their old-fashioned funerals. It was the custom there for the relatives always to walk immediately behind the coffin in the procession. And other members of the public and so on walked in front. Well, we all felt there was only one thing to do. We were all the relatives. So the entire church walked behind the coffin. Of course we were. He was my brother. The woman Christian felt that he was her brother. We were all related. We were all one. We are members of the family of God. We enter into a great and glorious fellowship. We become a people. We have the same interests. We have the same happiness. We share the same experiences. We enjoy the same blessings together. I've often said this in my vestry to kind friends who come here as visitors in the summer from other lands. They come in to see me, and you know I feel as I shake their hands and look at them that I've known them all my life. I can tell by looking at them that they're Christians, and we feel we belong to one another. It was a marvelous thing in the war. With troops here from different countries, they'd come and speak to me, and I felt it was an absolute proof of this. God's family is one throughout the whole world. Isolation, no, no. It's the sinful life that leaves you alone. Here, you come into a community, into a family. Children of God, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Participate us together in the common salvation. Oh, yes. And you know, beyond this life and beyond this world, that glorious prospect, which was described in that seventh chapter of that book of Revelation, that great multitude, so great, so large, that it can't be counted. Thousands upon thousands, endless numbers, all together in their white robes. Who are these? Well, these are God's people. They're all one. They're children of their heavenly Father. And they're going to enjoy and to spend their eternity together. But outside, there are those living the old selfish, self-centered, aggressive, quarreling, disputing, hateful, hating life. No community, that's hell. Hell is just no community. Every man for himself and all, against each other and against God, forever and ever, without relief. How terrible. But in heaven, they blend, they mingle their voices in singing the same anthem, in praising the same God and worshipping the same Lamb that was slain for their sins and hath redeemed them unto God. Oh, the fellowship, the city life, if you like, the city of God descends and we shall be in it and spend eternity there. The life of community, the life of oneness and of unity in God. Sin makes desolate and ruins and separates. The gospel builds, establishes, unites, and gives us a fellowship 
with God and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another. Thank God for a gospel that undoes the effects of sin from beginning to end and will ultimately present us faultless and blameless in the presence of God, all one in Christ, and spending our eternity together. Amen.